fun to hear about how God is changing lives like Donald and his story that he just shared with us. You ever think in your mind, like, who are people who are likely to come to faith in Christ like he did, or who might be unlikely to do that? I think we do. I think we kind of meet people, and as we're thinking about our faith and who we'd want to invite to church, we kind of divide people into likely and unlikely, less likely. Like, in, who, in your opinion, who would be the least likely person you could imagine becoming a Christian? Maybe it's somebody at the national level, somebody like a Richard Dawkins, you know, the famous atheist professor who wrote The God Delusion. Or maybe it's somebody closer, somebody you know. Maybe it's a professor and you sit in their class and you just can't believe they'd ever become a Christian. Or maybe it's somebody in your family, your sister-in-law, you know. They always have hard hearts, right? Uh, and you look and you just think, why is it that I've said these people are less likely to become Christians? Is it hard hearts? Or closed-minded? Or they're opposed to Christianity? You know, but when you think about it, who are we to say who is likely or unlikely to become a Christian in the first place? Is that our job to judge? Some of you may know Kat Von D. She is a Mexican-American tattoo artist, reality television show host, written books, New York Times bestseller, that kind of thing. And recently she became a believer. At least that's the story she tells. And there's a picture of her being baptized. Now, whether you know her or not is not the big deal, but she's a celebrity. And what I was interested in, though, is how people responded to her becoming a Christian. Because a lot of people are like, no possible way. That's all fake. It's all staged. That kind of thing. Now, I get the point about being a little bit hesitant if a celebrity becomes a Christian. We, we don't need to be wrapped up in celebrity culture in the, in the church. But on the other hand, I think we should always be rooting for stories like this. Any story of anybody coming to faith in Christ, right? Because when we doubt, when we say no way never happened, well, I don't know, but maybe we're starting to doubt and deny the power of God to change anybody's life. Today in Acts chapter 9, we're going to see a surprising person, a person no one would have ever expected to come to faith in Christ. And because this person became a Christian, it should encourage all of us to never give up on what God is doing in people's lives. Because today we're going to see the terrorist who becomes an evangelist. If you've been going through your devotional workbook, you know that I'm talking about Saul, who later goes by his name Paul and even becomes an apostle, one of the, the key leaders in the early church. When we first meet Saul, he is overseeing the death of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. We read about that back at the end of Acts chapter 7. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, that Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now these verses may, might lead you to think that he's just kind of a, a bystander, somebody who's watching. But we find out he's far more involved in that in Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So when Stephen was stoned, it was kind of this, this kind of a spontaneous crowd reaction to this message that he was preaching. But, but, but what we see is it, it set off this larger, wider kind of persecution. 
And, and Saul is one of the leaders in it. He's trying to destroy the church by putting Christians in prison. We pick up in Acts chapter 9. And meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, Saul tells this story three times in the book of Acts about how he came to faith. And when we put them all together, what we see is a picture of him, Saul, colluding with the religious authorities to hunt down every Christian they could. They went from home to home. They went from synagogue to synagogue. And the goal was to either imprison or kill them. So what had started as a, 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 the spontaneous reaction and, and stoning of Stephen had given way to this resourced and determined effort to exterminate every Christian. Now, many Christians in America think that somehow the government is against us and is going to ruin our faith and take away our faith. But the reality is that we live in a country much unlike Saul did. We live in a country where our faith has enjoys the, the most legal protections of any set of Christians in any country in human history. But it hasn't always been that way. And if you put, your play, put yourself back in the place of those early Christians, what were they thinking? Well, I'm sure they were scared. I'm sure they were wondering if God was going to protect them. But why exactly is it that Saul is persecuting the Christians? What does he have against them? Well, 15 years in the future, he will write about this incident. And, and here's what he says. Looking back, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. So, so let me see if I can help you get into Saul's mind by telling you a story that's more contemporary. In 1995, Yitzhak Rabin was the prime minister of Israel when he was assassinated. And he was assassinated largely because of what you see in this picture. Yitzhak Rabin on the left was entering into the Oslo Peace Accords, uh, oversaw by former President Clinton. Uh, and, and the peace partner at that moment was Yasser Arafat, of the, the leader of the Palestinian uh, uh, organization. Now, they won the Nobel Prize for this. And yet, there were people on both sides, hardliners on both sides, who didn't want this to happen. So there were hardliners in Israel who thought this was compromising, compromising Israel's identity and security. So there's a guy named Yigal Amir, Yigal Amir, who, who was a hardline Israeli who shot and killed Yitzhak Rabin. Here you see him with the gun in his hand uh, enacting for the court what he had done and how he had killed him. Yigal Amir came across in the press, they, they said that he was a law student. And that's true, but what we think of as a law student is not what he was. See, we think of somebody who's practicing law in a Western-style court. But in Israel in 1995, and the same in Saul's day, all the way back then, 2,000 years ago, to be a law student meant you were studying the Torah. You were studying the Old Testament law. And, 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 and so the, the Yigal Amir thought that Israel was compromising 
Well, that's what Saul thought. Saul thought that, that, that to share the gospel with Gentiles, to have these people proclaim their faith in Jesus, was compromising their faith. So Egalomir is serving a life sentence, still serving a life sentence for his crime. He's never one time expressed any kind of regret for what he did. So what he and Saul had in common, Saul back then, what they had in common is that they both thought they were doing God's work. Pick up the story back in verse 3. As he neared Damascus, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. When Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized he'd gotten some things right and some things wrong. What he'd gotten right is that he was devoted to the one true God. What he had gotten wrong is who that one true God was and how, he was, how that God was going to fulfill his purposes in the world. See, Saul got it right that, that he should be devoted to Israel and devoted to the Torah, the Old Testament law. But what he got wrong is who the, the Torah, who the Old Testament pointed to. So Saul was right in having this lifelong loyalty, but he was wrong in that the loyalty was misdirected. It's what the Bible calls zeal without knowledge, zeal without understanding. So on that road to Damascus, when the light shined and Jesus showed up, Saul finally got it, and he saw that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was the one that fulfilled the story of Israel. He was the one that the Old Testament pointed to. And, and, and Jesus commanded Saul to acknowledge that he was Lord, he was God, and to reorient his whole life around that truth. Now, is this the time that Saul was converted and if what you mean by that is he stopped being a Jew and became a Christian, then I think the answer is no. Because you see, Saul always thought himself as a Jew. But now, after seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, he sees himself as a Jew who believes in Christ, a Jew who is uh, 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 believing the promised Messiah has come. Back to the story in verse 9. For three days, he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. So Saul just sits there in this room by himself as the story goes. And, and he's just thinking. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's just trying to figure it all out. Who's this Jesus that he's just spoken with? And how does it fit together with everything he's read in the story of the Old Testament up until that point? All that he studied, all that he believed. How does it all fit together? Next verse, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So Ananias is like, God, are you crazy? I mean, this guy hates me. This guy wants to come and kill me. And now you're telling me to go to where he is? Are you sure, God? And God says, go. So Ananias goes, pick it up. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think Ananias is one of the unsung heroes of the Bible. Can you imagine being told to go to this guy who wants to kill you and hates you? But he is willing to risk his life so that Saul can be encouraged in his faith. There would be no Saul becoming a Paul and becoming the apostle had there not been an Ananias behind the scenes. Ananias was willing to to risk his life to tell Saul, you belong here with us. See, we've been saying all fall, you belong here. That's that's what we want to emphasize is that everybody that God brings to those doors, everyone that God brings here, if they're interested in learning anything about Jesus or just being a part of our community, we want to say you belong here. It's easy for me to say it. You've got to live it out. You've got to be the hands and feet that actually make people feel like they belong. You've got to be the one who goes up and introduces yourself to people on a Sunday. You've got to be the one who opens your small group to a new couple and makes them feel like they belong. You've got to be the one that invites somebody out for a meal or over to your house for a game night. See, I can say it, but, but you've got to actually do it. Now, it's not near what Ananias did, right? It's not near as scary, but it can still be difficult, But Ananias risked his life to make people feel like, to make Saul feel like he belonged. What are you willing to risk to help people belong? What inconvenience, what's uncomfortable are you willing to do to help people feel like they belong? You saw that Ananias called Saul brother. I mean, how does that work? They'd never even met up until that moment. Five minutes ago, Saul was trying to kill him. Well, from the very beginning, Jesus taught. Every believer is part of our family. Every believer is. Matthew 12. He replied to him, so this is Jesus, who is my uh, mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sisters and mother. See, in, in, in that first century culture where family was everything, Jesus said, no, your true family are those who believe in Christ and follow me. That's who your brothers and sisters really are, which means, of course, that every Christian is our brother and sister, our father, our mother, our sibling, our family in Christ, and that that has priority. Wow. Well, how would it change how I treat people, how I think about people? If I thought, well, in Christ, they're my sister. He's my brother. Yeah. So I told you that Saul tells this story, Paul tells this story in other places in the book of Acts. Here's one of the other samples where he places he tells it. And I think there's something interesting we learn here. So let's go. He says, I'm going through Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So just retelling the same story. About noon, I'm on the road. I saw a light from heaven. We fall to the ground. I hear a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? All right, same story. But here we get an added detail. This is what Jesus says to him. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kick against the goad, say what? Like, what's that mean? What's that mean? Well, a goad was a stick with a sharp point on it, a long stick with a sharp point on it, and shepherds would use it to prod sheep and goats wherever they needed to go to get where they were directing them, right? Now, the sharp point only came into play, it only hurt the sheep and goats if they kicked against it, if they resisted what the shepherd was trying to do and where he's trying to get them to go. 
So we hear, kick the, you know, you're kicking against the goats, and we don't know what it means, but every single Middle Easterner would have immediately gotten the point. Goat and sheep, they are stubborn, right? And so it's hard to get them to go where they need to go. So sometimes the, 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 the sheep and the goats would have to endure a little pain to be, to be protected from a wild animal. So sometimes if they resisted the shepherd who loved them and who knew what was best for them, who was trying to get them to go where they really needed to be, if they kicked against it, well, then they would hurt themselves. See, that's really true with us too, isn't it? That we hurt ourselves. We hurt ourselves when we kick against the goads of what God is trying to do, what God, the good shepherd who loves us and knows what's best for us, is trying to do in our life. So when Jesus says to Paul, you're, you're Saul, you're kicking against the goads, what, what's he talking about? Well, maybe one of the goads that, that God was using in Saul's life was his conscience. He'd been there overseeing the death of Stephen, being stoned to death. So maybe he's starting to feel convicted about that. Or, or maybe it was the message that Stephen was sharing about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Maybe that was the goad. Or, or, or maybe it was the way Stephen died and the joy and peace that, that Saul saw in his face as he was stoned to death for his, for his faith. The Bible is not super clear on that. But, but, but I think what Jesus is saying to Saul, but I think you and I should hear him as saying it to us, right? I think you should hear him saying to us, do not kick against the goats. Do not, do not resist what I am trying to do in your life. You only hurt yourself. You see, what God is saying is you can't defeat him and you can't get away from him. And the more you try to do that, the more pain and problems you bring into your own life. So Saul, uh, Jesus says to Saul, get up, get up, because I've got a higher purpose for you than the self-destructive life that you're living. Are you kicking against the goads that God is using in your life to direct you where he wants? I mean, has God been convicting you of your conscience of some sin or some behavior or some relationship that, that is, you keep going down here, it just causes more problem and pain? But you silence it, you compartmentalize, you ignore. Or, or maybe you've been living for achievement and success and, and, and there's an emptiness inside of you and that's one of the goads that God's using, but you numb it with alcohol. Or maybe your idols are failing, your life isn't turning out the way you want and that's a goad God's using to direct you, but you kick against it because you just keep doubling down on what got you where you are now. See, are you a stubborn goat? Are you a stubborn goat that's resisting God? He wants to move you in a place that's good for you. He's the shepherd who loves you. But every time we resist him, we cause these problems and pain in our life. We cause problems and pain. And we end up trying to manage those problems. And we try to manage those pains. But all the while, we're ignoring what the real problem is. You ever see the show Gilligan's Island? Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorites. It's a rerun now, so probably everybody's at least somewhat familiar with it. It's this cast, or this, this crew goes off on this three-hour tour, and they get a hole in their boat, as you can see, and they land on this island, and the whole show is about how they try to survive on 
this island, and they're always trying to get off, but they never can. And, and one of the people, the professor here, he's like this genius. So he's always inventing these crazy uh, things that allow them to thrive and survive on the island. Like the professor, he can take palm trees and turn them into generators. He can take algae and, and turn it into a vaccine. But after you watch the show season after season after season, and the professor does one crazy thing after the next to help them survive, you're like, whoa, 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 professor. Why don't you use your genius to fix the hole in the boat so you can go home, right? See, I, I, I wonder how many of us are managing all these problems out here, but we're not fixing the hole in our heart. I wonder how many of us are, are, are doing the equivalent of what the professor's doing, of coming up this new invention, this new way of handling some other problem, some other pain point in our life, but there's a hole in our heart, and if we address that problem, there's a hole in our relationship with God, there's a hole in how we're living with him. And while that might not solve every problem out there, it is our main problem. Because you see, sometimes the problem isn't the problem, the problem's here. And what we need to do is surrender and submit. Maybe you've never done that to God. God, I surrender my life to you. I give it all to you. Everything, cheers. Or maybe you have, but like me, every Sunday you gotta redo it. Maybe every day, but for sure every Sunday, one reason I need to be here is I need to resubmit and resurrender. Another thing we gotta do, I think from, from this passage, is we've got to leave this culture war behind. Christians, you had to leave the culture war behind where we think of people who disagree with us or who maybe they hate us. I don't know. But we think of them as our enemies. They are not your enemy. No matter what they've done, they are not your enemy. I mean, in Acts chapter 9, what we see is the terrorist becomes the evangelist and then he becomes an apostle and a leader in the church. So if they thought that Saul was not the enemy of Ananias, no, Ananias was sent to him to bring him in. So he's not his enemy. I mean, think about it. If God can take a terrorist and turn him into evangelist, then maybe right now the next Billy Graham who will influence millions of people for Christ, maybe right now he's drunk, uh, passed out at one of the fraternity houses on campus from partying too much last night, right? But God's gonna work. God's gonna, God's not done. Or maybe the next C.S. Lewis who will defend the faith and explain the faith to millions of people all around the world. Maybe right now he's in some online chat room Arguing that God doesn't exist. But God's not finished. God's going to mean God's going to work. Or maybe the, the next Mother Teresa who will stand for life and help the vulnerable and the poor. Maybe right now she is running, the next one is rush, running an abortion clinic somewhere. But God's going to intervene because God's not done. You see, I started by saying, who is it that's the least likely person you know to become a Christian? And it's kind of a trick question because it turns out the answer is everyone because no one is likely to become a Christian. Not you, not me. That's why it's grace. I want you to know that God is still doing things like he did in Acts 9. Like the, the conversion of, of, of Saul, that's, that's not just something that happened in the history books. It's happening today. God is at work in our world to do the same kinds of things. A couple years ago, the New York Times ran this story. The jihadi who turned to Jesus. And you see a picture of a man here whose back is to the camera, which you'll understand why in just a moment. But his name is Bashir Muhammad. 
He's a Muslim man who, in, in the article was written, was in his early 20s, and he fought for one of the offshoots of Al-Qaeda. So here he is, he, he's, he, he's fighting for Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, but now he says, this jihadi turned to Jesus, that's how he describes himself. He was the jihadi turned to Jesus, but he said back then, had anyone even suggested that was a possibility for his future, he would have gladly killed him. He was fighting for Al-Qaeda, doing all the things you think that means. And the, the, the violence and the brutality and the killing, it just it became too much. He just kind of grew disenchanted with the whole thing. And you see just one of the God's goats sticking there. And, and then when he went, left the front and went home, his wife was very ill, thought she was going to die. Here's, here's another goat. Thought she was going to die. So Bashir... He's worried about his wife, and he calls his friend Ahmad, who had also been in Al-Qaeda with him. His, and he calls Ahmad, and, and he's telling him about it. And to Bashir's shock, Ahmad had become a Christian. And Ahmad says, can you hold the phone up to your wife's ear? I want to pray for her. And Bashir said, I didn't want to do it, but I was so desperate that I did it. I held the phone up to her ear, and Ahmad prayed for her in the name of Jesus, and at least the way the story goes, she was healed. And Bashir and his wife thought, well, that's because God worked, Jesus worked. And it's not long after that, they both had a vision, they both had a dream that Jesus appeared to them. Now look, I, if you're suspicious, I get it. Everybody's suspicious, right? But this is a New York Times reporter who's probably not the most friendly to stories like this, out there interviewing people, talking to people, seeing that the evidence led to, yeah, this is very believable, and putting it on the front page of the paper because this story was powerful because this is a, a, a guy who's now on the run from fundamentalists because you know what he's doing? Catch this. Remember the terrorist that turned to an evangelist that became an apostle? God's still doing that today. Bashir and his wife, they lead Bible studies with Muslims who are interested in knowing more about Jesus. And he's on the run because his life is threatened. That's why his back was to the camera. But he said what we sang earlier. I trust in God. Let's pray. Jesus, we can't help but read this passage and think about what's going on in the Middle East right now. And we don't even know exactly what we should pray. Our hearts are grieved. We pray, God, that you are a God of justice and that you care for the vulnerable. And so we pray that you would bring justice to that region, but to also to the whole world, and that you would care for every vulnerable person. And Jesus, we we think of our own life, and we pray that you would show us where we're resisting your will, where we are kicking it against the goats. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that want to surrender and submit to Jesus. And finally, Lord, we pray for all those in our life who seem far from you. <laughs> give us the faith, Father, to see that you are at work see that you're bringing people to Jesus. But that's what you specialize in, God. We were once far from you too. It's no more unlikely they come to faith than us. Give us the faith to believe and to love them and to share the good news. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for worshiping with us this morning. Have a great Sunday.